You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sleeping in the car is cramped. Being a third-hand Honda, it's no palace to begin with. If it was a van, they'd have more room, but fat chance of affording one of those, even back when they thought they had money. Stan says they're lucky to have any kind of a car at all, which is true, but their luckiness doesn't make the car any bigger. Charmaine feels that Stan ought to sleep in the back because he needs more space. It would only be fair he's larger but he has to be in the front in order to drive them away fast in an emergency. He doesn't trust Charmaine's ability to function under those circumstances. He says she'd be too busy screaming to drive. So Charmaine can have the more spacious back, though even so she has to curl up like a snail because she can't exactly stretch out. They keep the windows mostly closed because of the mosquitoes and the gangs and the solitary vandals. The solitaries don't usually have guns or knives. If they have those kinds of weapons, you have to get out of there triple fast, but they're more likely to be batshit crazy, and a crazy person with a piece of metal or a rock or even a high-heeled shoe can do a lot of damage. They'll think you're a demon or the undead or a vampire whore, and no kind of reasonable thing you might do to calm them down will cancel out that opinion. The best thing with crazy people, Grandma Wynne used to say, The only thing, really, is to be somewhere else. Margaret Atwood is the author of more than 40 books of fiction, poetry, and critical essays. She's the author of the 2000 Booker Prize-winning novel The Blind Assassin and Alias Grace, which won the Giller Prize in Canada, and the Premio Mondello in Italy. Her novel Oryx and Crake was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Giller Prize. Her sequels to that book were The Year of the Flood and Mad Adam, Her new novel is The Heart Goes Last. Thank you for joining me, Margaret. My pleasure. This is such an interesting novel because you're writing a science fiction novel that's constructed entirely out of technology and even bits of society that exist right now. You got it. (laughs) In fact, day by day, it gets closer and closer. You know, uh, this novel is set in what feels like the post-2008 collapse, if it had been allowed to go its full way and just expire out. Was that a big inspiration for you? It was totally a big inspiration. In fact, I note that there's a new film out right now called 99 Houses, which is about a man whose job it is to evict people from their homes because they can't pay their mortgages. So this is actually an ongoing plot. The reason that Stan and Charmaine are are living in their car is that that happened to them. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people lately about kids who can't afford to live outside their parents' homes. They're moving back or they're sharing, you know, tiny little spaces with three other people. So it is, it's not only people being evicted, it's, it's kids not being able to afford uh, any kind of independent living. You know, this is, um, I think, uh, a really great example of 
a kind of slow motion apocalypse in that we always like to think it's going to happen in a blinding flash like Dr. Strangelove. But in retrospect, Dr. Strangelove proves to be pretty uh, optimistic, doesn't it? Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) Yeah, we did grow up during the 50s thinking that we were that the big menace was being um, atomic bomb to death, you know, and people dug bomb shelters in their back gardens, and kids were taught they had to go under their desks if anything like that happened. But we've got a whole new set of worries now, and some of them are environmental, of course, and and some of them are, are economic. We're getting much more separation between those with lots and lots and lots of money and everyone else. Uh, I think in the 50s, people assumed that the kids would do better than the parents, and that's no longer the assumption. You know, back in 2007, I did a piece for NPR about what I thought might be a new genre that was emerging back then, and I think this book is in many ways the apotheosis of it. And it's not science fiction, it's not horror fiction, it's economic fiction. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like okay. many novels that turn on the wheels of economics and use mm-hmm. speculation about that. This novel is really all about the economics, isn't it? Oh, uh, yes. Well, it does propose proposes a wonderful plan because Stan and Charmaine living in their car and with the vandals and whatnot and absolutely no white sheets or fluffy towels. Don't don't underestimate them. <laughs> they have great appeal when you don't have any. They see on television an ad for a thing that you can apply to and it promises if you get in, if you if you pass the criteria, it promises full employment for everybody in there, and it promises a house you can live in, and it promises a toilet that flushes, this is good, and it promises sheets with flowers on them and white fluffy towels. So it's very, very appealing, and Stan and Charmaine do get in, and it turns out that the full employment project is, there's a town called Consilience, and inside the town there is a prison. And the people in the project spend one month in the prison being prisoners, and then the next month they spend in the town being citizens of the town and guards at the prison and so forth. And then the next month they switch around again. And while they're in the prison being prisoners, another couple is living in their house. So they're time-sharing the house, and they're time-sharing the prison space, and that is the, the scheme that they find themselves involved in. One catch, if you sign in, you're not ever supposed to be able to sign out because the plan wants full commitment. It turns out to be a private, for-profit scheme, and the big question that will be in your mind and is shortly in Stan's and Germain's minds is, how are they making the profit? I, I love this uh, novel because it turns on a really classic genre, the town with a secret. The and, town with a secret. And there's so many examples <laughs> of that. And, and the second you get into this town, you kind of wonder because um, we see it's so great because we see so much of the surface and there's, but we understand there has to be a lot going in in the background. When you were writing this, did you work out all the background before you 
built the town on top of it or did you build the town first in your mind and then extrapolate the background beneath it? Well, you know how I started writing this? Uh, I started writing it online as a serial. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know where you were going to go? I cannot lie to you, Rick. No. (laughs) (laughs) Not at first, but you then work it out. Uh, However, my admiration for Charles Dickens is vastly increased because that's how he wrote his early novels. He wrote Pickwick Papers that way. He wrote Oliver Twist that way. I think he probably had it more worked out for his later novels than he did for his earlier ones. Uh, And you can kind of tell because Mr. Pickwick is episodic. Mm -hmm. And you can also see him doing that daytime soap thing of a character gets popular, so Dickens gives him a bigger part. (laughs) 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 Pretty soon he's going to have a whole show all of his own. Oh, and that Sam Weller, the Cockney servant, got very popular. But with mine, I, I started off writing one. I was kind of lured into it by Amy Grace Lloyd, who was my editor in the world of magazines and then was an editor on Byliner. So Amy Grace beckoned to me and said, why don't we try something on this site, which was called Byliner. So we did, and, and that went pretty well. And then I wrote three more, at which point my publisher started making agitated noises like, Margaret, <laughs> this should be a book with pages and, and covers. So then I had to, of course, unpick some of the um, connecting tissue of the, of the serials because when you're doing a serial, you have to remind people of what happened in the previous one. You can, you can see Dickens doing that as well. Last week on Lost. Just about like that. Yeah, when we last saw Oliver, he was picking pockets. <laughs> he was learning how to pick pockets. Um, and then we go off and visit his wicked brother, and then we hear other private conversations. Uh, but he, he, sw- he switches back and forth quite a bit, and he, he always ends his, his uh, numbers, because that's what they were called. He ends with a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. So I found myself doing that with the serial. When, you're, when you have a whole novel, um, you might want to sort of unstick some of that and build uh, some other things out. So the, the backstory that was sort of embedded in the serials got pulled out and put at the front. Mm, okay. And uh, then, of course, there had to be an ending. Actually, there had to be a continuation because... Where I left off online was Stan was was uh, disguised as an Elvis Presley sex robot and uh, <laughs> locked into a packing case, and he was being shipped to Las Vegas. So we then want to find out what happens to Stan when somebody opens the box, don't we? Uh-huh. Yes, we do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when you say that, it's just sound. I have been accused of torturing Stan. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I torch. You no, know, I, I don't think I give Stan a. Well, I give him a pretty rough ride, um, but also Charmaine doesn't have a fun time either. No, no. I, I think you have a lot of so much fun. This is a the book is a is a hoot to read. And what you were talking about too is an absolutely classic part of the science fiction world. This is this fits perfectly into the mold that. From Isaac Asimov to Ray Bradbury to A.E. Van Vogt, the fix-up novel. They, these guys, put some short stories that in the online in their online. Yeah, online. <laughs> Back together. Then, yeah. They put them out in in, in um, 
weird tales and uh, sci-fi magazines, yeah. and then they stuck them together. Yeah, and made so they can they can make even more money per cents. Is per that word. what they thought? No, yeah, absolutely. Those guys were done. Well, they really had to. I mean, in the early days, they really had to turn it out, mm-hmm. and also under other names, uh, because you had to write quite a bit to make a living out of it. That's why uh, L. Ron Hubbard became uh, so prolific, just so he could crank. He was getting paid by the word. And then I think he thought, I've written so many stories about cult leaders who get rich and famous. Maybe I'll become a cult leader who gets rich and famous. <laughs> I think he found himself in that position and was loath to turn it down. Now, back to your book, which is uh, really a joy. You described this um, setup where we have the prison and the suburb joined at the hip. And this is such an interesting uh, juxtaposition because, on one hand, America more and more seems, especially the conservative segment of America, seems to fetishize the 50s. And this uh, suburb is really like seen as heaven. On the other hand, prison, not so much, though your prison seems pretty heavenly by the standards of the way many people live today. Exactly. Even if they have a word. That's why they want to be in the project. (laughs) I wouldn't mind being in that prison. (laughs) Well, there there is a catch to the prison, which is they had to get rid of the real criminals because they were too disruptive. Mm. Uh, And, of course, if you're spending one month in and one month out, you want to make sure that when you're out and acting as the custodians, you have to make sure the food is good because it's going to be your turn next. Mm. And uh, you don't want to dish out horrible food and then have it dished out to you. So the standards are fairly high. And nobody wants really to disrupt this because it is so extremely convenient for all. But it's just a hop, step, and a jump away from some real towns in which the only industry is a, is a prison. Right, and I thought that was was what was so interesting because prison is now a big business in the United States. There are some big for-profit prisons, but if you go back in time, for instance, to the uh, North Carolina and Australian penal colonies, uh, once you have something that's up and running and is is profitable, what is your primary need? You need more criminals. You need more. You need more. (laughs) You need more inmates. Mm. You need more people to make it go. Uh, In fact, some of the for-profit ones in the states are not profitable unless they're full. And so there is a motivation to create more criminality. And we've actually seen a lot of cases where judges have been doing that. The judges have been getting kickbacks for sending kids from school. Uh, they pull a kid out of school for just being disruptive and send them off to juvie. You're joking. I no, absolutely okay, not. Okay, so you've gone beyond what even <laughs> you've gone beyond what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah okay. This is, there have been about three or four cases. Kickbacks that, from the prisons. Absolutely. That is so sick. It's it's very sick, and and, the, and this is these are kids who are pulled out of high school for like burping. Um, yeah, exactly, for being slightly disruptive in class. Well, this is what happened to women and vis-a-vis the Australian penal colonies because first they, they're only sending men there and they're sending them for things like housebreaking and other stuff like that. And then the men were kind of rowdy and chaotic and they felt that if they sent some women there, the men would settle down and have families and become domestic, etc., which is in fact what happened. But there weren't a lot of female housebreakers. In fact, there were hardly any <laughs> female housebreakers. So they had to lower the bar on what was considered criminal. So for a man, you got sent for these you know, reasonably major 
bad things you had done. Uh, and if you were a woman, you got you got sent for you know looking funny. Um, and, and really, it's like that. There's a there's a book called Damned Whores and God's Police, which is an Australian uh, classic about this. And that's what happened. They they needed more female prisoners, so they created crimes for them to, to be sent to be transported for. Wow. Well, uh, back in your future. We yes. have we have some uh, a, a lot of very interesting science fiction aspects to it in terms, of, for one thing, not all of the technology in this book is here, and a lot of the are society you is here. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Maybe some of the outfits aren't here yet, <laughs> but but just have a look around on the internet, uh, and you will find that that great strides are being made. For instance, the Japanese now have. Uh, Robot robots that can get goose pit bumps on their skins. Oh, that was the advanced model in this book. You yes, had to pay well, extra it for that. Ex- <laughs> exists. And Pepper the robot has just made an appearance in the media. And Pepper is a is a robot that can read uh, your emotions. And he was developed. He or she, I think of it as a he, was developed as a greeting robot to sort of greet you in in the east where greeters are a thing sort of in banks and stuff and then they put some peppers on sale for private consumption and they were snapped up immediately so you can have a little uh thing that looks like a chess man really with a round head it's got arms it can shake your hand and it can talk and it doesn't have legs it has wheels sort of r2d2 type of thing and it apparently can say, feeling a little blue, Rick? <laughs> I don't know. Why would you want that in your house? Uh, but it also comes with instructions that, that you aren't supposed to have sex with it, though, though I don't, from looking at it, I don't see that there's any way that you could. <laughs> I'd never underestimate the engineer. <laughs> we know. can make the robots. I don't know. <laughs> But there are people in California, well, never mind, we won't even go into that. Uh, they have some extremely attractive-looking talking models mm. already. Now, uh, this brings us to some of the neologisms. At the heart of this is a, very, is, is a neologism, which is the name of the town, Consilience. Uh, for you, you tell us that that is cons, the, the convicts, plus resilience. <laughs> that, you know, it sounded... A little, I said, well, I don't know, Margaret, it's, there's a little more going on than just the obvious there. <laughs> and the, first, the only thing I could think of, or the first thing that popped to my mind is when they always ask, well, what's the opposite of progress? Well, it's Congress. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I started to think that what we have here is a town that's not resilience, but it's opposite. Well, um, that's very deep, Rick. Um, sure, I'm not sure exactly what that means. Well, <laughs> I think that uh, in in the way you've set up this town is that uh, the people there are they have no bounce back. They have there's nowhere else. This is the town well, of they, last resort. Yeah, they've got no recourse. They've got no but recourse. within the strictures of 
where they find themselves, they've got quite a bit of resilience. Oh, yeah. But not in the way that the management would ne- would necessarily like. No, no. They would, The management has some other ideas in mind, and those have to do with a lot of the fun in this book. This is a very funny book. I think this is, I laughed aloud throughout a lot of this, and I found it very amusing. Uh, this book is, in many ways, it's a sex farce. <laughs> what, what, and, and, and in the best possible way. And well, absolutely. Uh, or a, a dark romantic comedy like <laughs> Midsummer Night's Dream, from which there is indeed an, an epigraph at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. So for the for the cup the two couples in Midsummer Night's Dr- Dream who are wandering around uh, in the middle of the night, it's a nightmare. Mm. For people watching, it's funny. Mm-hmm. So that is the difference, uh, and the people who have set it up, namely Oberon and and Puck, think it's a scream. But the human people, you know, the girl wakes up and the man who was devoted to her when they went to sleep can't stand the sight of her. He's running after the other girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this uh, is all quite pertinent to the plotting of this book. Yes, because of course, your time sharing your house. Uh, with another couple, and you're never supposed to meet that other couple. They are your alternates. They come in when you go out. Uh, But, of course, as you might suspect, such meetings do occur. Mistakes will be made. Mistakes will be made. (laughs) If mistakes were not made, we would really be very disappointed. (laughs) You know, uh, one thing I, I immediately started thinking about is that um, because free will is, a, is, a, is really at the center of this book and the consideration of it from many angles. And we right now we're in the process of giving free will to robots. The, the defense, the, the DARPA right now has is, um, as its goal for the drone program, there are like different levels of Choice. independence. Yeah. And uh, when they'll get they aim for full autonomy in terms of being able to decide whether or not to kill. They haven't got there yet, but that is definitely in their plan. And we like to think of robots as being programmed, and we like to think of ourselves as being free. That isn't always the case, is it? Oh, no. Uh, In a lot of situations, people's free will is very much limited by the choices that they actually can make. So if you if you think you've got uh, the free choice to be able to fly like a bird, uh, think again because because you actually don't. Well, a- as well too, um, humans operate by a limited set of impulses. And uh, when I was reading this book, and especially in when we're when the way some of the sex scenes are described, um, sex is often described as something of a robotic act, where you pretty much the idea is to lose your free will and give in to the to the total act itself. So that there's this kind of interesting, uh, I think, uh, graininess between the way the couples who are having sex and, and illicitly and not and the people who are designing robots to have <laughs> <Right>. sex with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, it gets complex. It's very complicated. I think you create a really nice uh, a set of 
for the reader, it's a really, it's a great experience to read that. And you've, all this stuff kind of bubbles up underneath. As it were. <laughs> <laughs> when you were writing this, were you thinking about um, sex as a robotic act? Not particularly. Mm. Um, but now that you mention it, um, pe- because people are working on these, you do understand that. Oh, yeah. No, the, yeah. I, the, you have, you call them, the, you have some great, uh, we were talking about neologisms. We had yeah. consilience, and you have uh, posillobots and prostopots. Po- po- well, prostibots is an accepted term. You can find mm. it online. If you put prostibots into your search engine, you'll get on some interesting articles. Uh, so the Dutch started working on this a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And the ones that they had come up with at that point sounded pretty clunky. But um, as I say, advances have been made. And people are, there are some very, very strange things on the internet. (laughs) There was this thing called Kissinger. I don't know how many of those they sold, but it was this thing that looked like an egg. And if you had one and somebody in a remote location had one, uh, you could both kiss it and feel the uh, sensations of being kissed by that other person. But actually, you were kissing this plastic thing that looked like an egg. Do you think that would be attractive, really? I, I think that would be extremely creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would just... I think. Well, people get it into their heads. For instance, the middle... Uh, I mean, they get it into their heads that this might be a good idea, whatever it is. Uh, there is a wonderful museum somewhere in the United States, which is the Museum of Failed Inventions, mm-hmm. and I think some of the stuff that we're going to that we're doing now is going to end up there <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think people will buy it. So the middle um, epigraph is from the internet, and it's from a guy writing a blog, and it's called "I Had Sex with Furniture," <laughs> and apparently somebody thought it would be a good idea to manufacture a sofa. Which, with which you could have sex. And uh, would you, I mean, most sofas are bought by women, actually. Do you think there would be much of a market for those? But he writes a blog saying, I did this so that you don't have to. And he gives it a pretty bad mark. <laughs> he said, this is, this is in no way like the real thing, he says. <laughs> but, but why, you know, what genius sitting in there lonely room at night thought let's make a sofa that you can have sex with you know why would you even think that um i probably for the same reason your characters in the uh prison uh want to contact stan with regards to his chickens oh well i i'm surely not in this day and age not a sofa i mean (laughs) 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 why a sofa that was uh, the question. Uh, I suppose uh, nobody ever uh, went broke underestimating American bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is probably already in the Museum of Failed Inventions, but I might be wrong. You know, this book is so interesting, too, because what you have, essentially, in the Positron Project is either a dystopian utopia or a utopian dystopia. And I love that you have blurred the lines between the, the two because we have so many dystopias. We don't have any utopias. Well, I think utopias are the coming thing, so get ready for a flood of them. But I wonder. <laughs> I, I think they might take the form of video games mm. of the design of perfect green city type. 
um, I'm not sure that they have they have yet returned to plausibility. They, there were spews of them in the 19th century because people mm-hmm. really believed that the world could be made better and better and better. So they, they were positing dystopia as the, the world they were living in. So looking backwards, it's the slums, the smog, the poverty, the disease, and all of that was going to be eradicated in the future. And he takes us to the future and shows us how. So there were a lot of books like that in the 19th century. But then, unfortunately, we got some some real utopias that that turned horrendous. Mm-hmm. So the Soviet Union, Hitler's Germany, uh, Mao's China, even Pol Pot's Cambodia—they they were all proposed as utopias. It's it was just going to be wonderful in the future, except that first we had to get rid of these people or those people who were interfering with our plans. And uh, we never, unfortunately, got to the part where it was was super terrific. So I I think we developed a distrust of utopias, and I'm not sure that we have overcome it it yet. But I, I think that every dystopia has got a little utopia embedded somewhere within it, mm. you know, either the way things used to be mm-hmm. uh, or the way things they could be maybe on another planet or out there in the woods. Um, and every utopia has got a little dystopia embedded somewhere in it. Uh, so either the way it is now, the way it was before, the bad world that we've come from. I'm thinking of Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the world that she comes from is the dystopia. The world that she finds herself in is the utopia. Though even that has a little dystopia inside it because they have a very candid conversation about what if people don't agree with your ideas. They said, well, we try to re-educate them. She says, well, what if that doesn't work? Well, we kill them because we don't believe in <laughs> no, we, we don't believe in prisons. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the people in in your book certainly do, and uh, I well, as a, as a you know as a as a capitalistic profit making, uh, full employment, life enhancing scheme. Well, life enhancing for some at least. Yeah. Well, <laughs> isn't that always the way? <laughs> isn't that always the way? Uh, the plot of this book is really great. It's a lot of fun um, because we have this kind of we. There's a there's an affair. There are there are secrets. Not there's, just one. There's there's not just one affair. Oh yeah, no no no. There's there's more than one. More than one. Yeah. Yes. By I don't want to give away too much. And there's a, it's a town <laughs> with a secret. Um, when you were plotting this, you had to, you had originally your your what you set up in your four novellas. Um, what you ended up with was a, was a quite a good page turner of a novel. Uh, how much work did that take, and how much was inspiration, and how much was perspiration? Oh, I think there's always some perspiration involved. <laughs> um, I mean, you you know, writing is work. Mm. Um, there's a wonderful manuscript library in Iceland, and because the Icelanders are very proud of their writing manuscript tradition, which preserved the sagas, et cetera, et cetera. So they have a museum, and in it there's a medieval manuscript, and in the margin the scribe wrote, writing is boring. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, there is always the drudge work in writing. 
but of course, what you hope is that it doesn't show. Well, I think part of the the this book uh, has a really urgent and tense feel to it, and that's uh, due to the tense. Uh, it's written in this present tense, and you give it a lot of urgency. It reads like something that some kid might have written. Oh, is I, that good or bad? Uh, really good. I, oh, okay. I, th- I thought it was. It, it was By kid, ex- you mean accomplished. 34-year-old. Yeah, and a super accomplished, <laughs> uh, brilliant 24-year-old. You don't mean 15-year-old. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. I, you, you know what I mean. It, it has a lot of urgency in it. Yes, and well, that's because of the situation that the people find themselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, things are not um, things are not good for Stan and Germain living in their car. You get to exercise your devilish, satiric sensibility in this novel, and you have quite a bit of fun with it. Uh, but you know, it's not much of a stretch from reality. <laughs> That's the problem. That's the problem. That is the problem with writing anything mm-hmm. remotely satirical in, in this age, is that, I mean, please, Donald Trump is running for president. What is satire? I, yeah, that's. I I suppose that he's he's front running for it. So I suppose we pass beyond. Uh, well, you can't actually tell whether he's running for president or just having a heck of a good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, long ago I talked with uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, who just said, "Rick, we're living in a bad science fiction novel." <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. I, I think it gets uh, more terrifying with e- with each day that goes by. And what I admire in this book is your ability to uh, write something that seems uh, both timeless and yet, you know, uh, in this uh, in the genre of day after tomorrow science fiction, which is a really tough row to hoe because you have to write something that, you know, is not going to be outdated, but and I think part of the reason you accomplish that is through your sense of humor playing with the way, you know, the possibilities of what you can do with mm-hmm. the with Well, the technology. everything gets outdated sooner or later. Uh, on the other hand, if, it, if it's uh, faithful to its own premises, mm-hmm. we go with that, mm-hmm. do we not? So 1984, um, is that outdated or not? I would say it's not. I mean, I would say it, not particularly. No, it still I, seems. I'm not rough. sure that we're doing Big Brother exactly that way, but we're certainly doing Big Brother. Oh yeah, no, I well, uh, you know, with the release of the Samsung TV sets that will record your voice if you once you enable the voice command on them. Oh, you, tell me about this. Uh, <laughs> All right. There's a. Why do you want that? Uh, so you can just say turn on channel four and let's watch the news. But once you engage that feature, they say, well, we might just leave that microphone all the time and record everything you say. So who says that? Uh, That's in the fine print, you know, and you you address that. Really? It's in the fine print. Yeah, you know, there's like about What is this might? I mean, (laughs) might, can you say, actually, I don't want that? Can you turn that feature off? I don't think you can turn that feature off. You mean once you've enabled the voice recognition it's on. It's on. Forever. Uh, yeah. Who would buy that? Uh, people who don't don't read that terms and conditions and are probably okay. don't care. Okay, so why is Samsung doing that? Uh, who knows? So they I mean, can data mine your yeah. dinner table conversation. Well, I mean, that's the same way with Siri, too. I mean, Siri. What? <laughs> you don't think Siri so, is? Well, I don't use Siri, so oh. tell me about Siri. Well, so I, I, 
Siri does not run locally on your iPhone. Siri is not a program that runs on your iPhone. It, call, it, it certainly runs when you have internet, right? Yeah. So that means it's going back to Apple, right? Yeah. So what do you think they're doing? I don't know. <laughs> I think they're Siri they're find like, find me pancakes. Yeah, somebody's interested in that. <laughs> Who knows? But you know, it's it's data. It's cheap to it's cheap to keep, and it's getting mm. cheaper all the time. So you read Dave Eggers' book, The Circle. I haven't read it. No. Oh, it's for you. Oh, okay. I reviewed it in the New York Review of Books. Oh, okay. I'll take a look at it. Yes. Well, it's, I, it's definitely for you. My, to my mind, however, um, all that said, in in your book, uh, you have you do have a part where Stan and Charmaine sign away on the fine print, which of course they don't read. It's that no, all these famous not. terms and conditions, you know, the the click through boxes. Who reads boxes. those? Yeah, how can you possibly read that? You can't. Well, you can't. You could read it, but uh, you read it once, and you assume that it hasn't changed. But of course, it has. Oh yes. Now. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in this book is what these people find out about themselves as they as they enter this. And I love what happens to Charmaine. I think you do a fabulous job with her. You know, the, she's such a great fluffy bunny, and uh, she is a good German. Oh, what a bad <laughs> thing you have just said. <laughs> uh, she's, yeah, sort of. I, I, she's a bit of a steel magnolia, I would say. Uh-huh. So... Uh, uh, you would be deceived by her if you thought she was just a fluffy bunny, mm. ever. I don't think she was ever just a fluffy bunny. Well, I think that uh, uh, this goes to this idea of uh, free will in this book because... Um, well, you're, as, as, as we all know, the, the, the choices that you make with your free will are limited to the choices you actually have. Mm-hmm. So living in their car, Stan and Charmaine don't have a lot of options. Mm-hmm. And once Charmaine is in the system, she also doesn't have a lot of options. At one point, the character asks, uh, do you believe in free will, she asks? Her voice is different. It's not her usual confident tone. Is this some kind of trap? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I love those kind of notions, that the way that you... Um, create these these really intense bits of tension throughout the book and foreshadowing as to what's going on kind of in the background. And that must have been fun to write. Did you get to, as you were stitching this back together, this must have been fun to go through and put in all, all these razor blades into this nice uh, pretty yeah, apple. Yeah, I think there were some razor blades there to begin with. <laughs> uh, yes, there's, there's uh, writing, you know, I'm not one of those people who think who thinks writing is boring? Mm. It's it's work, but it, it's not boring for me. Well, obviously not. Not when you're writing about uh, the Elvisorium. <laughs> <laughs> did you get to? Did you go and research Elvis the Elvisorium in Vegas? Is well, there one? Is there one? Let me put it this way: there probably is now. <laughs> there are certainly a lot of Elvises mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. In fact, you can get married by an Elvis in a drive-in chapel, and you can meet Elvises here and there. Uh, so, But there are Elvises in, out in the world. There's a book called Dead Elvis, which is from some years ago, which points out that Elvis ma- has made many more appearances since being dead than he made in while he was alive. 
And I think the reason for that is that it's, it's, such, it's such a recognizable image mm-hmm. uh, that it's easy to disguise yourself as, a, as one. Mm. There's a character in here who's not in here and is in here, Grandma Wynne. Yes. I loved Grandma Wynne, and I think she's an important kind of figure and a kind of figure that crops up in fiction from now, now and again. And she's really good in this book to explain who she is and your interest in those kind of figures. Well, she is um, Charmaine's grandmother who's, who has brought her up and is full of um, sort of old-fashioned sayings. Mm-hmm. And Charmaine herself, having been brought up by Grandma Wind, she is not a person who swears. So she's, she doesn't use the vocabulary of of today, in which there is, in fact, a lot of swearing. Um, she uses the vocabulary of some decades previously, uh, as far as swearing goes. So she doesn't say, fill in the blank, she says, heck. <laughs> Did you did 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 clean read did the clean reader app cross your field of vision? Uh, I I remember it a little bit. It would it would eviscerate this book. Um yeah, so it was an app that changed all of the hells to hex, mm-hmm. and it changed all the dams to darns. Uh, yeah, I changed, guess she does that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it changed all the gods to goshes, etc. And it, it would just play havoc with Paradise Lost, <laughs> just for instance. Well, did you did you write her uh, dialogue in what? Clean readeries? No, Clean Reader happened after I had written Charmaine, but um, it's a somewhat similar idea that you can have a very clean vocabulary but still not be behaving appropriately. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I I have to say I thought you did a great job with Phil. And the way he talked, because oh, I think I wandered off the subject of Grandma Wynn and why I'm interested in those people. Yeah, I think probably because I'm that age. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I can do. Are I can giving, do Grandma Wynn. <laughs> are you giving sage advice to your children and grandchildren? I think I'm giving sage advice to everybody, Rick. <laughs> I'll give you some. <laughs> well, that's called uh, your out literary output. I'm wondering. Well, I wonder about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact is that. Um, if you give sage advice and you're 25, everybody thinks you're insufferable. <laughs> but if you give sage advice and you're, like, really old, then people think, wow, she's giving sage advice. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm old enough now so that I don't have to take my shoes off in airport security lines. You don't? I don't. Wow, God, when am I going to get that age? I don't, uh, you know, don't long for it. (laughs) So so the lady said to me today, she said, Honey, you don't have to take your shoes off in the line. And I said, Oh, yeah, I'm old. I'm the, uh, I said, um, She says, No, you're you're not old. You're the right age. You're the right age. You're the right age to not have to take your shoes off. Stan. Well, that, that shut you up, didn't it? <laughs> no. Uh, Stan, Stan's uh, language. Everything's relative. Yes. Right. Stan's language, on the other hand, as opposed to Charmaine's, is yes. really blue. He swears a lot. He yeah. swears a lot. And I think you do a great job. You're really, you, you, rock, you rock blue language uh, like nobody's business. You know, there's lots of examples 
to learn from. Oh, uh, so is this something you learned? Is this, is this way that I think is this I you at home? From, no, <laughs> you learn it from reading. Oh, okay. Yeah, you learn it from reading what people. Uh, I mean, I I can remember the moment when those words were allowed in. Mm. You know, when you were allowed to have them in in uh, in novels that had a print run of more than about fifty. Oh, okay. Uh, they they were in sort of experimental small press books before that time, but it was mm-hmm. Lady Chatterley's Lover that really was the the hot button issue. Mm-hmm. That and James. Joyce's Ulysses. All right, right. Um, so there were court cases about Lady Chatterley's lover, and then there were moments at which that language got into the New Yorker. Mm. It has not yet made it into the New York Times, but it has made it into English newspapers. Well, we're getting a lot. So have the floodgates been opened too wide? We do not know. I, I can. There's an interesting book on swearing that says. Um, uh, at a certain point, you weren't allowed to use blue language, mm-hmm. but racial slurs were just uh, very common, and now it's the reverse. Interesting. So you get into trouble not from saying the F words and all of that. You get into trouble from saying all those racial slurs that people used so freely in the 1940s. And now, well, that's an interesting observation. Uh, we are at the moment, too, I think, for me at least, betraying myself, uh, the... Uh, Television has taken, you know, leaps and bounds into what you can see on network TV. There's a yes, whole, it has. There's a whole uh, legion of words. Yes, it has, and not only words, images, mm. words and images. That's true. So, at what point does the shocking become the banal, and uh, at what point? Um, then how are you going to shock us? Yeah. Then how are you going to shock <laughs> us? Yes, and a huge amount of controversy over. Uh, what people should wear, mm. you know? This Why does this never go away? So once upon a time, it was long hair on hippies. Mm. Big, shocking, awful thing. I remember thing. My, my parents looking at those terrible beetles on Ed Sullivan. Long hair, and, and they didn't even have long hair. They just had <laughs> sort of bangs. <laughs> yeah, little did they know it was about to hit them yeah. in the way of hair. But why do people get so really worked up about that, what people wear, whether they're wearing, you know, Muslim dress, whether they're wearing turbans, whether they're wearing with the length of their hair, why is that so? Uh, why is that such a thing? Because it kind of always has been mm. big controversy in the nineteenth century was whether women should wear bloomer suits mm. and ride bicycles. Bicycles were supposed to be very immoral. I guess. Well, you might ride off into the countryside and have sex. <laughs> <laughs> Unchaperoned. You well, know, in your bloomer suit. <laughs> in, your, in your bloomers. Well, I think uh, part of that, uh, my take is, is that it's, you know, the herd identity. We, if, if you're not part of the herd, it, it's like that great... Yeah, but there's so many different herds. Yeah, well, so is it people objecting to other people's herds, or what is it? I think it's other people's herds, and the herd is so flexible. I just remember that scene in um, the update of the Body Snatchers where Donald Sutherland sees a whole busload of people all go by. They're all completely different, but they all look at him, and you know mm. what they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that you know, it's I guess uh, that's ultimately where it li- lies. It's, it's a Body Snatchers fear, terror of the other among us. 
and we can most easily identify them by the way they look. Yikes. They they are among <laughs> the aliens are among us. I think that was a James Forrestal. Oh yeah. He was the uh, Secretary of the Defense, um, uh, who worked at Area Fifty One for a while, and he they sent he ended up in the insane asylum. It's in a John Keel book, I think, Disneyland of the Gods. Ooh, you've lost me there. What was Area Fifty One? Oh well, you know, Area Fifty One's where um, it's next door to. The atomic testing range where they developed the U-2. Is this in Nevada? Yeah, in Nevada. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's you mean the place where there's giant cockroaches? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Martians land. Is that that place? Yeah, yeah. Near, right. near next door to Roswell. It's where all the, uh, where they, where were all the um, alien technology is rumored to have been, where they dragged all the flying saucers. And um, do you think they're actually there? Uh, no, I think once there's uh, U.S. Uh, high-tech spy planes that they don't want us to see, it's much more um, convenient uh, for us to say, for the Army to say, oh, it must be a UFO. They don't want to say, it's our latest weapon of <laughs> death with which we can rain slaughter down upon yeah, populations. But they never, never have never actually done that, so I don't <laughs> think they actually have that. I mean, we know about drones. Well, yeah, but they well, we didn't know a lot of about a lot of the stuff that came out of there. The no, S, we didn't. The SR seventy one, which is, I guess it was Johnson who accidentally. I think you're way ahead of me on this stuff. Oh, of course, the, the first person who uh, who wrote about that kind of thing was was Jonathan Swift, mm. and his flying island worked by magnetism. Oh. And if they didn't like if they didn't like what a population under them was doing, they would just. They would just fly over it and get between it and the sunlight, and then nothing grew. Well, there we are. Jonathan Swift, one of the original uh, users of science fiction. No, so, no kidding. Yeah. And the mad scientist trope originated with him as well. Really? Yes. Interesting. Now, are you going? To, are you working on a mad scientist novel? No, because I don't know. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think my scientist is mad. Um, but I've written about Jonathan Swift and mad scientists. I have an essay on him in my... In Other Worlds. Yes, it's in there. Yeah, that's a fabulous book. I think I recommend that to anybody who would like to explore the where... Deep roots, <laughs> the deep roots, the deep roots of sci-fi. Yeah, the deep roots of science fiction and of your fiction, too. Now, um, one of the things I think that I liked about this book, too, is... Um, Something that works is uh, work a lot in this is theory of mind, which is to say, um, the characters are always trying to think they're uh, Stan's looking at Charmaine and trying to figure out what Charmaine's thinking about Stan, and and Stan's looking at and Charmaine's looking at Stan and trying to figure out what Stan's thinking about Charmaine, and nobody's is exactly right, and you play with this theory of mind uh, endlessly to much. Uh, to much amusement, and you use it uh, yeah, to drive your plot, Yeah, but I think that's just too. how we go through life every day. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're always, you're always interacting with other people. Um, you don't probably spend a huge amount of time wondering whether the person who smiled at you in the check-in line is, is really happy to see you or not, but mm -hmm. at least they're giving you a smiley face. But I think you use that to drive plot, which is a, yeah, which well, is a of lot course. of fun. Yes, when people have secrets, then, of course, it becomes a plot driver because you're trying to figure out uh, who has guessed what about whom. And 
that's that's quite pertinent to what's happening in, in this book. Uh, when you uh, you had these four parts and you had a you ended with a a total cliffhanger for your poor <laughs> a byline or guests uh, readers. Um, did you know where it was going to end beyond that, or had, were you just uh, still? Thinking? Well, by the time you get to that point, you mm-hmm. you have some ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it's how I write in general. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't. Uh, I've only tried twice to outline a book ahead of time, mm-hmm. and both of those were failures. Mm. I, I simply can't write that way. So you have to surprise yourself. Well, I have to just get into it and then and then follow up leads, as it were. So it's a lot like the rat in the maze. You know, you go in and you go down the corridor, no cheese there, you come back, you go up, you go down another pathway, maybe there might be a bit of cheese there, and that cheese might lead to some others and a different pathway. So it is the labyrinth of of branching paths, and, and some of them lead somewhere and some of them don't. So I throw out a lot. Do you? Now, because this is a very compact novel, was there? Was there I a, threw out a lot. You threw out a lot. Yeah, I always throw out a lot. Mm, well, I think it's perfect the way it is. I've really. Oh, thank it, you. It's a just an absolute hoot. And then, you know, in terms of, uh, reminded me uh, of uh, classic Vonnegut. That's. I oh, that I'm very fond of classic Vonnegut. You you have that same vibe of you're having a lot of fun. There's a lot of deep oh, thoughts in here. Oh, he was a pretty him. dark writer, you know. Oh, well, yeah, so are you. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't think yeah, I missed it. I, I mean, this the... is not as as much fun as this book, as much as it makes everybody laugh out loud, and it's a love story, and et cetera, et cetera. It's, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think, of course, my theory about Midsummer Night's Dream is that it's really pretty dark. Mm. That's what you were saying, and I had never considered it in that manner before, but I think you're you're absolutely right. Yeah. And leave it to Margaret Atwood to turn Shakespeare's uh, fun romantic comedy into a nightmare. <laughs> but it is for the for the people in it. It is a nightmare, and that's for uh, the human beings in it. It's mm-hmm. a nightmare, no question. Which is why I've always I've never actually really felt cozy about it. Mm. You know, um, it's, that... it looked at that looked at it that way. It's 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 really kind of sadistic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I suppose. Uh, but I mean, I, but that brings to mind a question for you. You uh, like to use the externalizing power of science fiction to um, take subjects out of you know their out of their shell and bring them to life as plots and points. And I think that you, you're quite skilled at that. But have you you've done some stuff uh, with your Mythos series? Um, in the supernatural realm, have you ever considered uh, going, using the, writing a similar novel, but uh, just using supernatural tropes? Um, so, are you talking about um, those three books in the Alfin Land? Uh, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, the Penelope the per- ad, or yeah, Penelope ad, yeah, yeah. There's a little so bit of that there, but I'm thinking like. Uh, can we, can we Have ever I ever thought of writing a real ghost story? Yeah, a real ghost story. I'm or not a, good at it. A vampire novel. I'm or not good at, oh. at it. I mean, I have a, a capers zombie two-hander on Wattpad with Naomi Alderman. That that is that is, uh, it was you know you know summer camp mm-hmm. when you sit around the campfire and you start telling a story and then it's 
the next person's turn. Uh-huh. So okay. we were doing that with a with a zombie mm-hmm. story because Naomi is an expert on zombies and she's got a thing called the Zombies Run Game, which is an exercise enhancement app mm-hmm. that you put in your phone. It gives you a story while you're exercising. <coughs> you're always runner number five. You're picking up objects for your beleaguered humans and you're running along or whatever you're doing on the treadmill and it measures your heart rate, it measures your um, blood pressure, and your your dispatcher is saying, runner number five, you're in the clear, pick up the water bottle, pick up the band-aids, you pick up these things. And then it says, oh, runner number five, I made a terrible mistake. There's zombies all around you. Run! <laughs> you, have to run you have to run fast enough to escape them. Um, and it's been pretty successful. So Naomi and I did a two-hander on Wattpad, which is the site where you post free stories. Mm-hmm. And I played the grandmother, she played the teenage granddaughter, and it begins with the granddaughter phoning the grandmother and saying, Grandma, Mom just ate Dad in the <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> and the grandmother says, I never liked that woman. <laughs> so it goes on from there, and the the plot is that the uh, granddaughter has to get the grand, the zombified mother into a Z-liner, which is, specializes in transporting zombies. Mm-hmm. And she's going to bring her across the Canadian border, and they're going to fly her to England to the Happy Zombie Sunrise Home, which is what the story is called, <laughs> the Happy Zombie Sunrise Home, which is for those zombies, those loved ones of yours that you would like to provide a happy home for. Um, though not yours. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes on from there, and, and we would typically write each other into a corner, mm. and then the other person would have to write their character out of that corner. This is the worst thing Naomi did to me. <laughs> she has the grandchild uh, going through the forest with the Z-liner and the driver of the Z-liner and the mother in the back, and her phone is running out of electrical power, there's a recharging station, uh, and she goes to the recharging station, which is a little hut uh, some distance from where the Z-liner has stopped to refuel. And in this hut, there is an electrical outlet. There is a single window. There is a single door that opens inwards, and there is a bureau with drawers in it, and there is a bucket. Okay, so she recharges her phone, and <laughs> then a zombie appears outside the door and is looking in the window. So the only way out is through the door, which is right beside the window. What does she do? So she phones <laughs> her grandma and says, Grandma! <laughs> and I had to get her out of that. Uh, so what was my solution? In my chapter, I say, here's what you do. What do you think? I would say call grandma. Well, she did call yeah. grandma. Have but grandma. what does grandma tell her to do? She's stuck in this thing. The zombie can get in through the door if she's not careful. Chop off a, a small limb and feed the zombie that? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> a finger. No. Feed the zombie a finger no. while it's eating the finger. No. <laughs> no. Run. no, no, no. Bogus. Horrible. <laughs> okay. Here's what she advised. Uh, you push the bureau over to the door 
leaving just enough space for the door to open just enough so that the zombie can get the top part of its body in but can't get all the way in. Mm -hmm. When it does that, you put the bucket over its head and hit the top of the bucket with one of the bureau drawers really hard, (laughs) and then you kick it backwards and leap over it (laughs) and sprint for the car. Sprint for the car. Well, that's good. You must die. That, that's why they pay you the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rick, <laughs> you would have figured it out yourself now, given time. Uh, let's kind of get back to the real world dystopia, the Canada. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, things are going south in Canada. What do you mean by south? Well, south of Canada is the United States. Yeah, what well, it's becoming, it's, it's, becoming to, it's uh, becoming more and more like the United States in an unpleasant conservative manner. Well, we do not know that because we're about to have an election. Mm. And uh, I'm just curious. You're a, you're a writer, and you you speak a lot about it, and your books have a, a pretty political edge to them. Yes. So I'm curious, uh, when you publish something like this, which has at its heart... Uh, an economic catastrophe brought on by um, a kind of a cannibalistic uh, uh, capitalism. Yes. Uh, Am I worried about my own country? Yeah. Well, we all worry about our countries constantly, do we not? Uh, Yeah, I I must myself attest. Yes, we have no fingernails left. (laughs) We've gnawed them all off worrying about our countries. the thing about our country is that there are five political parties in it, mm-hmm. and the present government seems to have only about 30% support, but since there are five political parties, we don't know how vote splitting will affect the outcome. Mm-hmm. And that is what happened indeed last time, because with 38%, uh, this government got the majority of parliamentary seat, so we have the parliamentary system, and it is first past the post, and we don't have anything that you have, that college of the electoral electoral college, college. we don't have that, which I've never totally understood that thing anyway. It's at these days. It's just a very new, complex. It's a new way to game the system. Essentially. Well, I think it always was a bit of a way to game the system because the uh, fathers of American democracy were a bit worried about everybody getting the vote. In fact, everybody didn't get the vote for some time. And well, they should be. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that's it, it, part of those people who didn't have the vote to begin with were women. I mm. just remind you of that. Well, that's true. I've been speaking with Margaret Atwood. Her new book is The Heart Goes Last. Thank you for joining me, Margaret. And thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.